Thank you again, worship team. And good evening, everybody. I am. I have the privilege tonight of maybe moderating is the right word or helping our panel. I don't know what kind of deal you have going on here, but yeah, that was subtle. Um, so as we've been seeing in uh, our, the book of Second Timothy, uh, the context of the wonderful book that our speakers have been taking us through is that Timothy is somebody who is more of a veteran Christian, excuse me, Paul is more of a veteran Christian, and he is awaiting his execution, and he's writing to Timothy, his son in the faith. Uh, what that means is I think there is real biblical precedent for us learning from Christians who have just been in the business longer than we have. Does everybody understand what I'm saying? I'm not saying that Mark and Shen and Fodel are towards the end of their life or anything like that. Or facing execution. <laughs> or facing execution. Or we're going to lock them at Dublin Gap and not let them leave. No! Uh, what I do mean is that I personally, and I think all of Disciple Makers, has really been shaped by Mark and Shannon running the Christian life race longer than most of us. And so tonight, we're going to shift from the mode of exposition to engage with some of the questions that you guys asked. Wonderful questions, and we have a lot of them. I hope you guys are ready. But the questions are going to take the form of us leaning in together to a bit of a biography and Q&A instead of exposition. Does everybody understand what we're doing? So I have the privilege of asking them really the wonderful questions that you guys asked, but also um, asking them a bit about their lives because a lot of the questions Mark and Shannon had to do with ministry and endurance and I think things that you guys have really modeled just really well to so many people. All of the staff in this room and all of the conferences and camps that go on, much of what happens is because of the work of Mark and Shannon. And a lot of the staff are where we are today because of their work. So I'm turning the tables tonight and I'm hijacking the show <laughs> to ask them a couple of questions, okay? So you guys have been married for how many years? It's gonna be 30 in August. Yep. Yep. 30 years. <laughs> they have four kids, one of them's here. I don't know where she is. I think she's somewhere over here. <laughs> and say that again, I don't know if you're- She's in the strawberry patch. Right. Uh, <laughs> She loves it when we draw attention to her as well. Um, Mark and Shannon, Mark, you started ministry, you told me right over there in 1980-something. I don't know when that was. When it, this, I, I can't remember. I started uh, full-time campus ministry in 1985. 85, okay. So you guys remember that year? It was a good year, right? Yeah, <laughs> I'll remember that. Whatever. So which means that you're pressing into 40 years of ministry. Friends, we have a lot we can learn, okay? So I know this takes a different form tonight. Can I invite you to lean in um, and maybe glean as much as you can? Tell us how you guys became Christians. Real briefly, I know we can't like sure. a whole testimony because that would be all our time. But how do you become Christians? you want to start? Sure, sure. I first heard the gospel right before coming to college. And it was through going to a friend's youth group and hearing that basically heaven was cool. It was like the best ski slope ever. That's what I heard. And the only way to get to the top of the mountain was to trust Jesus, who was like the ski lift, and let him bear my weight. And I said, oh, that's all you have to do is get on the lift. Um, so coming to Christ meant I got a ticket to heaven 
But actually, coming to college, I realized Jesus is far more than just a ticket to heaven. He's my Lord. He's my best friend. He is my everything. And he really knows how life works best. So it really changed everything coming to college. Ticket to treasure. From ticket to treasure. Yeah. This like could be that. your autobiography someday. How about you, Mark? Yeah. <laughs> I, I did not enter college as a Christian. I had no intention of it. And uh, I went to Lafayette because at that point it was voted the third top drinking school in the nation. Uh, my goal was to become a lawyer, and uh, I added to their reputation as a drinking school, at least my freshman year, if not beyond. What happened is, um, I remember being in my, my dormitory, and every Wednesday night for about the first four to five weeks, these two guys would knock on the door, I'd answer the door, they'd say, hey, do you want to go to a Bible study? And I'd go, no, and I would close the door. And then finally, the fifth or sixth week, I just felt so bad for these guys. I'm like, I'll go to your Bible study. So I went to the Bible study, and then I went to the fellowship, and it was really just an otherworldly experience for me. Because I grew up in a, in a religious tradition where people, it was just formal. People just punched their ticket. Nobody sang. They just in and out. All of a sudden, there were a group of people who were like singing, like we did tonight, and praying as if someone's listening and reading the Bible as if it's meaning something. And then I, I joined a small group right after that, and my freshman year, I was living a double life because I would go to the small group every week, and then right afterwards, I would go out and get drunk with my friends at the fraternities. Something happened about midway through my freshman year where I was pretty angry at someone in the fellowship, so rather than drinking after Bible study, I drank before Bible study. Yeah, I know. And I, I would just come drunk, and my, my goal was just to mess this thing up totally. At the same time, I'm rushing a fraternity, and my two worlds began to collide. And something happened toward the end of my freshman year where my Bible study went and found me and said, you need to come to Bible study. You're part of our family. I'm thinking, why would they do that? If I were them, I would applaud that I was no longer coming to their Bible study. But they just wanted me to be in it. And I realized at that moment that the, the fraternity I was pledging, if I violated their rules, they would never come after me. There was something about these people. And so the Lord just softened my heart to the gospel. And about halfway through my spring semester, committed my life to Christ right on a bench outside of uh, Skillman Library there. So that, that's, wow. that's my story. Well, it's this experience of grace that both you're saying, you kind of had the more of the rebellious story, but I, I think that actually ministers to a lot of people probably who are pursuing people for Bible study. And that's, yeah, that's really encouraging, I think. What about ministry? Let's talk about that for a little bit. So both of you decided to enter into ministry, and one of the juicy details you dropped is that you wanted to be a lawyer. Yeah. Yeah. You're not a lawyer. You're an advocate for Christ. I don't know how to say that. And I don't know what dreams you had, but you both maybe ended up in different places than you dreamt you would be. Could you tell us a little bit about how that happened? Yeah, so I, I was pursuing a career in law. And um, during one of the summers at Lafayette, I had interned at a law firm. And it's funny, once you get into a profession, you begin to see beyond the veneer of it. I'm like, I'm actually not sure I want to do this. All the guys there were divorced. It was just, it was a pretty broken lifestyle. It's getting more and more involved in the fellowship. Uh, between my sophomore and junior year, I, I led a team of 29 teenagers with teen missions to Venezuela for the summer. I don't know who would entrust 29 kids to me, but it happened. Um, 
And so I just had this taste for ministry, and it came to my senior year where I was just very confused. I didn't know whether to pursue law, because I had been accepted to law school, or to pursue ministry. And I went and talked to the faculty advisor of the fellowship. He was a mechanical engineering professor. And I made, as a liberal arts major, I made the momentous decision of entering the engineering building for the first time. <laughs> and I told this professor my dilemma, and I just remember he looked at me and he said, so, 10 years from now, what will you regret not having tried? As soon as he said that, I'm like, it's ministry. So went out after I graduated, went for a year at a Moody Bible Institute out in Chicago. My goal was to go to foreign missions. I really wanted to be a foreign missionary, I think because of my experience in Venezuela. Um, but what happened is, in the midst of applying, uh, the fellowships in, in the Lehigh Valley area, they, they needed someone to staff them. And I said, okay, I'll tell you what, I'll just fill in for a year. <laughs> yeah, there we go. So that's me. How about you, Shane? <laughs> You're just still here on loan, right? You um, tell such a yeah. good story. So um, I went to college um, similarly, uh, having my American dream all planned out. I was going to go to medical school. And I, ha likewise, had done a lot of interning. And as my faith grew in Christ, I realized I didn't, necessarily want to go into medicine for the same reasons anymore. I wanted to actually care for the person before me, body and soul. And so I wanted to get to know patients and I wanted to do medicine for that reason. And internship after internship, again, I was always with a woman and I just saw their lives and the, the turnaround of patients after patients, 45 patients a day. And I just thought, I don't think I'm going to get to know people and actually minister the, to them deeply. I'm not saying that there aren't physicians that do that. I just didn't see it. So I thought, well, I'll go overseas and maybe I'll do foreign missions, medical missions. And so I did that after graduating, went to Uganda, East Africa, and did medical missions and worked in the hospital and worked in a clinic and taught medical students. I did a lot with that. And we saw 65 patients a day yeah. because people walked 20 miles to get to the clinic or whatever. And so I just couldn't do it. It just wasn't why I was going into medicine. So that changed everything. And I thought ministry to people is really what I want to do. So let me, let me press into that a little bit because some of the questions the people listening want to know, how did you know then that God was calling you to it? Like, is there a difference between you saying, I like this, or I want to do this, or here I am, oops, I'm here 40 years later and I never left, or is it that God, does God call you to it and you have to figure that out? How, how does that all work? Well, I, you know, I, I, there was no sign on the edge of I-78 or right. something, yeah. So um, There actually is a sign on I-78. Yeah, but that's not telling me. Good point. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think oftentimes people wait for a call. I, I just think it's your desires yeah. as well as outside confirmation and wisdom yeah. from other people. That, that's what worked for me. And one thing to add as well is... When I first started in campus ministry, by and large, the major campus ministries in our country were known basically as staff as revolving doors. Right. So in other words, you served for like two or three years and then you became a youth pastor, like you did something real. And then I remember hearing a talk 
where someone said there's a tremendous value in honing your craft and being a seasoned craftsman at what the Lord has called you to. And I just remember that talk giving me a vision for not using this mission field as a revolving door, but a place to just excel in my craft. And that's why I'm so thankful on Disciple Makers. Well, how long have you been on staff? 20 years. 20 years. It's unheard of in most campus ministries that we would devote our lives to this generation, to this, uh, sorry, this segment society and just try to get better and better and more effective over the years. Yeah. Tell me, uh, tell me what you think is the most satisfying part about working with college students. It's hard to say one. I know the, um, the fact that iron sharpens iron. And so I, I know it's been said up front from, I think even Zach emphasized, you encourage us in the Lord so significantly and being in the word together and growing and making knowing Christ more is so, so sweet. Um, as well, like there, even just the vision of the fact that we can reach the nations at the university. They come here and then they stay for four years and they go back. It's astounding. You can reach the world. There's so many. Do you have another? Yeah, I mean, I, for me, it's just change lives. Change lives that, I, I think Brian C. was talking about it. Change lives that change lives that change lives. Yeah. And this past February, Shannon and I were out in Dayton, Ohio, speaking on discipleship at a church. And the pastor of that church was a kid that had come to Lafayette, not as a Christian. Yeah. He just became involved in the fellowship. And I still remember his first meeting afterwards, he said, I'd like to argue Catholicism versus Protestantism. Can we do that? I'm like, no. But we can talk about Jesus. So we went through the Gospel of Mark, he became a Christian, and now he's pastoring a church out in the Dayton area, and his church has planted five other churches. I'm like, wow. It's just, for me, that's thrilling. Yeah. Wouldn't you, to play devil's advocate, wouldn't you be more um, financially secure with a different job? This is not, I really appreciate this question, because this is not an unusual question to be asked. And this idea of financial security. I think there are a couple things that this question presupposes um, or undergird this question. First of all, that it forgets where financial security comes from, right? The Lord owns it all. So financial security comes from him, first of all. And no matter our calling, it's always first and foremost, a ministry. I think there's this, sometimes there's this dichotomy. Should I go into secular business or should I go into ministry? First of all, there's no more godly choice, period. But at the same time, I think realizing that the Lord owns it all. Mark often has a perspective on even support raising. I don't know if you all realize we all are missionaries and we raise our own support. So we all have a prayer team, a support team of many, many people that are praying for you. And that really affects even the perspective of finances. Do you want to share your perspective on having multiple Oh, people? sure, yeah. sure. I was just sharing this with someone at Focus last week. So I think about it this way. If, if I worked for Walmart, I have one employer. If Walmart has a problem, That's I'm right. out of a job. But actually right now I have about 150 employers. 
such that if one of them has a problem, it's okay, I got 149 others. So I feel like it's not only the Lord's security, but financially, this, this, this is a good deal. The other thing too is, maybe you haven't realized it yet, it's easy to make money in our culture. Like if you wanna make a lot of money, it's not that hard. You just gotta sell your soul and beat your body up to do it. I realized that early on. And I'm like, it's not hard to make money, it's hard to make an impact and have character. Wow. Yeah. And we're not at the top earning of our culture. But I tell you what, every year our kids say, what do you want for Christmas? I, I, I don't know. Yeah, like what we just sang, all I have needed, hand your hand is provided. So I, I, I don't need anymore. And I would, I would rather be where we are right. and just to be content rather than be, just be chasing after riches. And the Bible actually says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Yes. And you're saying, just have our needs met. I do think finances is a thing that rattles around in a lot of people's minds when they think about, should I do this ministry thing? There's, a job, there's job security or ministry. And you just completely busted that myth. I think that's right. All right, here's what I want to talk about. If you've been doing this for 40 years, some of our questions reflect this. Burnout, discouragement. Maybe tell us about a time when you felt discouraged or how do you keep doing this in a way that you don't feel discouraged or burnt out for so long? One of our question askers asked, what about like even praying for things and you don't see answered prayer? That's just so disheartening. I'm sure you've maybe experienced that, but how, tell us about a time when you maybe ministry-wise trying to help someone and you just feel discouraged. Just one? Yeah. Uh, the, the, at least for me, there are just a number of times, either instances or seasons, where it's so easy, like Timothy, just to lose heart and to get discouraged. I think what happens, though, over the years, and I hope this is the right way to say it, the Lord builds up a strong enough resume with us yeah. that we can look back and we can see he is faithful in the good seasons and in the hard season. And it just, age starts to give you the perspective of going, I don't have to rest my hope in this or in that. A number of our fellowships, and maybe yours is there now, sometimes fellowships are cyclical. There are years of harvest and there are years of drought. And it's so easy, for me at least, to put my hope on the years of bountiful harvest and to get thoroughly discouraged in the seasons of drought. Age and the scripture helped me to see God is faithful all through those things. And the only thing, we've often talked about this, the only thing I have to do is work out my own salvation. Just work out my own salvation, God will work out the rest. And that helps me, that just has helped me over the years to endure. Hang on, so yep. the, the measuring stick that you use to say, am I encouraged or discouraged? The thing that you're looking at is not I'm trying to tease out a principle here, is not like, how did last week go? Oh my gosh. Or even how did last year go? Right. Mm -hmm. You're saying, I've seen enough seasons to know great is thy faithfulness. Yeah. Well, yeah, and to bounce off of that, it's tempting for all of us to put our hope in what we can see and taste and touch and feel. And I think God, in his wisdom and graciousness towards us, just keeps going, just slaps our hand and says, don't put your hope in that. It's not going to last. Because every good day is followed by a hard day. And many hard days are followed by good days. And after a while, you're like, I don't want to live on the roller coaster anymore. 
I want my hope and my confidence to be in God and his promises that they will sustain me all the way through. Yeah. Well, I was going to throw it to you because, Shannon, you have done ministry plus um, homeschooled your children and kind of done multiple hats as well. Could you share thoughts about, like, discouragement? Yeah, but also what about burnout? Sure, I'd love to talk to that. One of the scripture that came to mind as you were talking, Mark, um, when Jesus sent out his disciples and they came back and they were like, you're not going to believe it. This is amazing. People like got healed and they were so excited. But Jesus says, don't rejoice in this. Rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. And that's so sobering, and I think that's kind of what Mark is getting at. I would say probably I focus more on relationships or individuals growing and flourishing in the Lord, and my burnout or discouragement can come when I expect or anticipate someone to move in a particular direction, and the Lord does a different thing in their lives, Um, and... Again, it's that temptation to look at fruit. To look at fruit and to base my wellness on what I see instead of the realities that never change about who Christ is and what he's done for me. Um, And then the other verse that totally popped out is from Philippians 2.12. I have this circled, the one pronoun circled, circled so many times in my Bible it's work out your own salvation because nobody else's salvation. I will not be held accountable for anyone else's walk with the Lord. It's not my, my job. The Lord will never come back and say, Shan, why didn't you make so-and-so trust in me and turn from their, like he will never do that. So let me let me press you on that a little bit. So then yeah. um, one person even asked, like, so you can just continue to pour out and pour out and pour out and homeschool and disciple your kids and then mentor college women and young men and do talk after talk. Surely at some point you're going to be like, I have nothing left. I'm kind of done. Can you just disciple any number of people and feel like I can just keep doing this? Isn't there like a point where you hit your limit and feel like I'm done? Uh, what's oh, How does burnout work? Can you disciple someone too much. Yeah. No, go ahead. Yeah, I, I was just looking at First uh, Timothy four verse sixteen. He, he just says, "Keep a close watch on yourself." I think that's an important principle. Keep a close watch on yourself. Some of us have the capacity to do more. Some of us have the capacity to do less. Neither is better or worse, but we need to keep a close watch on ourselves. We need other people to keep a close watch on ourselves. We also need to know our frame. You know, Psalm 139, he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. So we need to know our own dustiness a little bit. So for me, winters are enormously difficult. I'm just so tempted to get discouraged in December and January, just so tempted because it's dark. I often feel bored. I can't get outside. So I need to cultivate in my life things that will rejuvenate me. Whereas here, this is like great. This is really fun. But it helps to know our dustiness, to know how can we draw close to the Lord and others. That's why in February, February tends to be a hard month for us. So this is not a corporate plug. Uh, We always go down to Disney for a couple days. We are not sponsored. <laughs> Maybe Chick-fil-A, but anyway, uh, 
Yeah, we just go down and we stay in one of the resorts. We don't go to the parks. We just read by the pool. And it just refreshes us and it gets us ready for the next season. And I, I think after a while you get to know your rhythms a little I bit. I might actually call that self-stewardship is sure. what you're doing. Yeah. You're practicing stewardship of yourself so that you can sacrifice and pour out. But you, not want, you don't want to just do it for a year. You want to do this for the long term. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and it takes a while to figure that out. Yeah. It takes a while to figure out your patterns and everything. But that's why I think what Paul said to Timothy is good. Keep a close watch. Understand how you react and act. And then plan according in yeah. terms of that. Okay, a bunch of people here want to know. Look at them. They're on the edge of their seats. They want to know about ministry to non-believers. Yeah. A lot of questions had to do with that. Ministry to family members. I know you guys do a really wonderful job of that, as well as like your neighbors and stuff. What about like, how do you minister to family members who do not believe in God? Is there like a slam dunk proof that God exists? Like, is there like a go-to thing that you do? Particularly like family members who already have habits, like they planned brunch on Sunday or they have sports on Sunday. So they're like already can't come to church. How do you be a winsome influence to people who feel like they're adversarial, either by way of proof to non-believers or ministry to family who already have other priorities? Do you guys have experience in that? Yeah, so it was nine questions right there. Yep. Okay, so uh, <laughs> I'll start with family. Because sure. both Shen and I come from uh, non-Christian families. And I remember when I first became a Christian, I immediately went home and told my parents how they had raised me wrong. <laughs> oh, and that won a lot of points on the board. Oh, my goodness. And I feel like my witness was pretty damaged there. And it was pretty weak for a while. And then something pretty amazing happened is that I married Shannon. That was amazing. Yeah. They actually like her more than me, I think, because <laughs> they're smart. <laughs> but anyway, I think the point is they actually saw someone else who shared my values. And that was good because, you know, when you're in college... I don't know. My parents are used to me having a different major every semester. So it's just another thing. And then we started to have kids and they began to see the fruit of the gospel through the lives of our kids. And slowly we began to gain credibility with them. Um, my, my sister and brother-in-law a few years ago uh, came to know Christ. Yeah. What's amazing is we had witnessed to them for a long time with seemingly no impact but their dental hygienist witnessed to them and brought them in. So I'm like, how, how does that work? I don't know. And the, the scripture that's helpful for me is uh, Acts 16. And that's where Paul and Silas have just been preaching in Philippi. And then they're arrested, they're beaten, and they're thrown in prison, and they're put in the stocks overnight. And if you remember the story, they're singing hymns while they're in prison. And in the middle of the night, an earthquake hits. And all the prisoners start to scatter for the exits. And Paul and Silas stay there. Then the Philippian jailer comes in. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Here's a connection. I think that God puts us in our families because you never know when the earthquake's going to hit. And when it hits, you want to be there so that they come to us and do, what must I do to be saved? And for some of our family members, we are still waiting for that day. But that gives me hope. Earthquakes are coming. As Christians, because we know the Lord, we know how to handle an earthquake. 
But non-Christians, earthquakes are devastating. And without the Lord, what do they do? And could it be that we're just building trust and credibility and just keeping that relational door open such when walls finally fall in, they come to us and ask. So Yeah, I think that the principle while we wait for the earthquake, which come to all of us because we're not in heaven yet, is to sacrificially love, generously love like Jesus, and don't edit Jesus out of our conversation. Like pretty regularly, if I'm talking to my mom or my stepmom or my sister, if they ever even come close to saying, well, what's going on with you or anything-ish that way, I'll say what I learned that morning from the scripture or what I learned in the last talk at Focus. Like I just tell them what I really care about. So, or, and I do ask permission like, ugh, I remember feeling that way. Can I share what was helpful to you? And if they say yes, then I share for real. Well, you guys are answering a question that you might not realize you're answering in that someone wanted to know, like, is there a go-to proof that you use for God? And you're answering that question sort of mm -hmm. because the Bible doesn't offer us, uh, uh, at least a, a, a logical proof of the existence of God. The Bible assumes that God exists and is written on our, knowledge of him is written on our hearts, which is why when the earthquake comes, yeah. everyone says, oh my God, and right. such things. Well, yeah, in the Bible, I, I don't think there's a, foolproof proof for God. There's a foolproof person, and that's Jesus. And so we always want to talk about Jesus. I remember in terms of ministering to neighbors, I think when we first moved into our neighborhood, our goal was like, okay, we want to be the perfect family. We're going to be that light on a hill, and everyone's going to stream to it. Well, that, that was shattered probably after two hours or something. And then we finally realized Actually, rather than trying to be perfect, can we just be normal? And in the midst of that, as we wrestle through life, uh, point people to Jesus. One of the, one of the, the guys I, I have a consistent witness with is our mail carrier. Mm -hmm. I mean, I figure if the Lord's going to bring him to our house every day, he must want me to talk to this guy. <laughs> Why else does God bring people into our life? And so I, I just remember at one point he said, you and Shannon have the best relationship. He doesn't talk like that. Sorry. I don't know why I did that. He's actually pretty normal. <laughs> yeah, you're going to harass me. No. Uh, you and Shannon. Okay. He said, <laughs> he said that we have such a great relationship. And I said, Mark, it really isn't us. It's not us. It's Jesus. Jesus has totally transformed our lives. And, and I'm regularly inviting him to church. I don't know if you know this. A couple of weeks ago, he pulled up in the mail. Hey, Mark. Hey, Mark. It's pretty easy to remember his name. And um, he doesn't come from a church family uh, background at all. He says, hey, you know, you know that church you own down in Quakertown? I'm like, well, I don't own it. But yeah, I, I get what you say. He's like, could we, could we come to that this summer? I'm like, I've been inviting him for years. Sure. He's like, because my daughter... She's over in England now, and she, like, she got religion. Like, someone talked to her, and she says, totally changed. And she's coming back this summer, and she's like, I'm only going to come home if we can go to a Bible-believing church on Sunday. So can we go to yours? I'm like, hallelujah. <laughs> so, but it's like seeds. It's like with my sister yeah. and brother-in-law, right? 
Gosh. One of the things I'm just getting from you is the time frame that we use to measure our encouragement meter is often just really off. Oh, yeah. I, I think for me, certainly. You know, like little things, one little thing I can notice. My countenance can be up. I'm so encouraged. God is real and angels are jumping off the page of the Bible. And one thing, my, it's like I have this fragile countenance. You're saying the, the measurement of time that we use to, to measure fruit is really, really important. Yep. Can I give you a detail on that? Yeah. So a number of years ago, in terms of our staff team, the question was asked, in terms of your memory, when was the first time you heard the gospel? And then when do you remember responding to the gospel? What was the, the, the span of time between right. that? Right. The average amount of time was eight years. Wow. Eight years, which has helped me because I'm like, if someone doesn't respond in three minutes, I get, dis I get discouraged. Yeah. But it, it's the seed that is sowed and then it finally bears fruit in God's so if you're if you're on that sort of timeline, then is there ever a place to quarrel with somebody or to engage in a debate? If Aren't you trying to change people's mind? Right? We're trying to often correct people who are in sin. That's a thing, right? Gentle restoration. So how do we restore people or change people's minds? Ben Hager mentioned that quarreling was fruitless. Is there a place for that with non-believers or with family members? What do you think? No. Yeah, yeah I, I guess I would say no. Yeah, I'm not sure what, what context you're Yeah. Yeah, I, of. I, I would say, you know, two thoughts is if, if you just level the playing field and you understand what's going on in evangelism, all we are is I am one beggar and I'm leading another beggar to the bread of life. Like the cross just equalizes us all. It's really, really helpful. I also remember that Jesus called us to be fishers of men and not hunters of men. Yeah. So, you know, I, I was fishing out on the, the lake the other day and you can ask me about that one that got away. But anyway, the interesting thing about fishing is you gotta be patient. You have to choose the lure or the bait right. You put it out there, and at just the right time, you gently pull that hook. And I think that's evangelism. I have never seen anyone argued into the kingdom. I've seen them persuaded, and God's the only one who can change hearts anyway. Yeah. Yeah, so while we make disciples, maybe we gently restore people in sin. Is that a thing? Like, can we correct people? But what's the difference between offering a corrective to someone and, like, debating because we often see debate happens in an apologetic um, context. Perhaps there's an appropriateness to that. But we often think being a strong Christian means that you're ready to kind of jump into the ring. I'm hearing you say no. Yeah, I, I, it seems like for me it's the attitude behind it. When, yeah. when you say debate, I think, well, my goal is to win a point yeah. or to win the argument. And I'll tell you what, gang, I don't care about winning arguments. I want to win people. And I want to represent Christ well. And if that means losing a debate, I'm okay with that. Yeah. I'm okay with losing a debate. I just don't want to lose the person. And I remember a number of years ago on, on campus, we, we had a debate between a philosophy professor and a, and a, and a pastor in the area. And, and pastor was a godly man, but I could tell that because of his tone, he was winning the argument, but he was losing the audience. And that was just a good corrective for me. I don't want to lose people. I'll lose an argument, but I just don't want to lose people. And I think that's the, that's the, the dark side of debating or quarreling. Yeah, you know? that's right. It's aiming at the, it's the wrong standard of success. 
let's shift real quick to just in the last couple of minutes we have just some practical questions that people have. Sure. There are a lot of people who want to know about how they can disciple and do ministry in the ordinary things after they graduate from college. Mm -hmm. So it's like I'm in college, I have this great experience. How do I kind of keep that going? How do I disciple people after I graduate or like transition to adult living if I go to my parents' house either this summer or you know, post-college? Any thoughts on that, on how to make disciples in the workplace or post-college? Yeah, sure. I think some of the principles that we've been learning about in 2 Timothy are just so helpful. The idea, first of all, of taking initiative um, and asking those two key questions, you know, how... How are you being strengthened in the gospel by grace? And then how are you investing and trusting it to others are just very key. Um, I do think it's hard. Yeah. It's hard. You don't live with people any yeah. longer. And people are busy. So taking initiative with people and being intentional with people takes a lot of effort and a lot of self-sacrifice. You know, I know I have seen wherever I am as my mission field. So whomever lives nearest me, maybe at lunch, I'll go to their house. You know, can I bring lunch to you? Well, I only get a half hour because I work from home. I'm like, that's okay. You know, you really have to be creative to be intentional. Um, and it's challenging. Yeah, it's really challenging. One other thing, you asked another question about going home to your parents' house, I still, I'm over 50 years old, when I go and stay with my mom, I have a prayer team for me because I resort to the old ruts yeah. of former little pagan Shannon who was selfish and didn't help and you know, entitled and doesn't study her Bible and gets, stays up late and gets up, doesn't get up. Like those ruts are so deep. And so even to this day, I get a plan of what I want life to look like when I'm at, if you say, home with my mom. And I get people to pray for me and hold me accountable in my areas of temptation and struggle. So... It's hard. Yeah. It's the habits really sort of come back easily. They come back so easily. And my yeah. mom expects me to be and do. Right. And it's hard to say, I'm going to go to bed at 10. Right. So I can get up early, so I can get time with the Lord. So you're empathizing with the person who I asked really this. But am. Do, do you set new habits? Like, I feel like I'm this godly person here, and then I go home, and all of a sudden I'm like a kid again who just doesn't love Jesus. <laughs> That's really distressing, I think, for people when they think about their personal growth. I think going home, this person might be saying, I go home and I feel like all of a sudden, like the habits are gone. Am I a real Christian? Mm -hmm. Well, and I think too, once you, you have so much freedom during the semester, most of you, and you go home and all of a sudden you realize I'm, I'm under authority again. There's a rhythm of life in the home. And it's very hard at times to, to fit into that. But yeah, as much as we can, we right. need to, yeah. And I know for our extended family, we've had to set deadlines so we don't go to parties on Sunday morning. We go to church on Sunday morning. Well, one other thing you said about discipleship out of college, I would agree with you, honey. It takes a lot of initiative and effort. So, yeah, so college is like community on steroids. 
right? So it's like everyone wants friends and so you're around each other all the time. It's just not that way once you get out. So you have to be very, very intentional. You have to be patient to form the relationships and it just takes a lot of effort to keep them going. There's, there's one guy I, I discipled at Bucknell years ago. And he, he asked me a question a number of years ago, and we still talk every Saturday morning from 8 to 8.30, 19 years later. Oh. Yeah. So it's not impossible. It just takes a whole lot of initiative and a whole lot of thoughtfulness to put it in. How, how can you tell if, as a Christian, you're growing or if you're going backwards? Well, I think, first of all, it's, it's a long-term game, yeah. again. And secondly, our hearts are deceitful. And so get people in your community and ask them, do you see me growing? How do you see me growing? And very often they can be a better sounding board on, on your own Christian growth. Right. Well, this person asked, am I a Christian if I feel guilty for my sin, but I don't try to stop it? Yeah, I'd like to talk to them more about it, but... Feeling guilt over sin should be a normal occurrence for a Christian. In other words, before I came to Christ, I didn't feel any, any guilt over my sin because there was no Holy Spirit in me to occasion that. But now that I do, and we've often shared that when I became a Christian, my vision of my sin was probably about this big. Now, you know, how many years later, it's like, oh my gosh, it's this big. But... That's just because my understanding of God's grace and holiness is so much bigger as well. Oftentimes people think if I feel bad about sin or if I'm struggling with sin, it's a disqualifier to be a Christian. I just think it's one of the clear evidences that you are. Galatians 5 says that there is a war between the flesh and the spirit. And so feeling guilty or conviction over sin or struggling to give up entangling sins, Hebrews 12.1, is the sign of the Christian life. So it's when you gave a talk years ago. Here at Focus, I still remember you None said... None of them were there. It's, yeah. 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 Uh, Different talk. Well, I'm not sure. So, but, but the point is this. You said beware of a hardened heart when you no longer feel anything. And that was a great... I still remember that to this day because the spirit in us wants us to re respond to things. So when someone says, I feel so guilty, am I a Christian? I'm like, that guilt might be the clearest indication that you are. Yeah, yeah there's a difference between feeling sad about the consequences of your sin right. and feeling guilty about your sin. And likewise, I remember a talk you gave, Dave, on Ephesians 4 and the calloused heart. So maybe it was a different talk. And this idea that we don't ever want our hearts to become calloused yeah. to sin. Yeah, because mean. it, you know, my favorite passage about sin is Genesis 4, I think verse 7, where sin God says, so God says, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. So rule over it. So e easy to think of sin as like a little kitten that we pet and it's like comforting or, you know, maybe pleasurable and then we put it down. It is not a kitten. It is a lion that is devouring you. That is the goal of sin, to rule over you. And that's like a huge switch. So there's, there, a, there's a warning. Right. And there's different ways to experience whatever guilt. That can be a buzzword. It could mean good conviction, I mm -hmm. think. 
or it could mean, oh, I feel a little bit embarrassed because people are watching, sure. right? So we make a distinction usually between sin living in us, which it does this side of glory, and us choosing to just live in living sin. In sin yep. Yeah, that's a very big difference, and I would want to know, you know the question asker how they mean. We have like one minute remaining. Here's what I want to ask as we wrap up. Um, there were some questions on theology that we didn't get to, like if theology is important and all that. You want to just say yes? yes? Okay, great. We covered that. Um, I mean, because we're always right. doing theology. Theology isn't boring. Guess why? Because theology is important because you have one. Yes. Yeah. We're always living out of our theology. It's just a matter of so if it's sure, good. Make sure it's the right one. Or not. Yeah. What would you say that you just really wish you knew when you were this age, that you reflect on and saying, please, I really wish someone had helped me see or helped me know or told me blank. Could we end on that question as, just as an encouragement to us who are running the race at this stage of our lives? I, I would say, I, this is going to sound odd, I wish I knew how short life was. I really wish I knew it. Like right now I'm 61, and, I, you know, I realize... Uh, the passing over the river is coming closer. And someone said to me once, days seem long, but then weeks seem shorter and months and years. I mean, we're almost at the end of May already. Like time just flies by. And I wish looking back, I had had a perspective of eternity, even in my younger years. Francis Chan has this wonderful little image or video where he has this really, really, really long rope and at the very end of it, he just has colored it red. And then the rest is, is white there. And he said, do you realize that right now, this is your life, then you'll die, and then that's eternity. And what you do here will influence all of that. And I wish I had, I had taken that more seriously when I was younger. That's really good. That's, yeah. Um, I probably will be less profound and more simple. I, I think the one thing I wish I had realized from the get-go is the greatest treasure is Christ himself and knowing him. It's not working for him or doing for him or giving. It's really just knowing him. And there's no sweeter thing. Could you guys help me? Could we thank these folks for sharing a part of it? Well done. Uh, apo certainly, apologies if we did not get to your question. Mark and Shannon would love to engage in the other ones, the theological ones, the practical ones, the ones about helping non-believers, or if you just want to pick their brains afterwards. They're here. We're not letting them go. We're actually kidnapping them, and they're living at Dublin Gap now. <laughs> I'd love to pray for us while the worship team comes forward. We're going to close with one more song tonight. Father in heaven, we worship you. We thank you for giving us and for giving your church and your people godly examples. Lord, thank you um, for the, the ways that we can look to one another for encouragement. Lord, we look to you and thank you for the great hope that we have in the mighty name of King Jesus. Lord, would you encourage us and continue to spur us on, even through this Q&A, would we raise up mighty disciples from in, in us and among us here? And would we continue to express our thankfulness to you as we continue in worship now? We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.